I don't know if any of you have had the experience that you have inherited something. And uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, maybe there's an expectation of that perhaps down the road. But as we think about that idea of inheritance, something has to happen in order for you to receive that inheritance. It's assured, it's certain, but you don't receive it until the person who has designated that inheritance for you dies. And we're going to see a similar comparison that the author of Hebrews is making in this passage in explanation of the work that Jesus has accomplished. For anyone to receive the blessings of salvation, Jesus had to die first. Why is that so important? We'll see in just a moment. Just to review, two weeks ago, we were looking at that we should inherit the promises through hope because Jesus is our eternal and perfect high priest. Last week, because he is the high priest of a better ministry, a new covenant, and uh, on the basis uh, in, in a better tabernacle or temple. And then today, I want us to see that we need to inherit the promises through hope because Jesus is both mediator and sacrifice in your place. The first idea there, that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So mediator... Uh, that's not a word that we use you know, on a Wednesday, for example. That is a word that means this idea of the one through whom it comes, right? He's the one who um, delivers it. He's the one who secures it. He's the one who accomplishes it. It's important to note as well in this passage that there is a, um, a little bit of a word play that's going on here. So, in the Old Testament, you had a Hebrew word that meant covenant. We talked about the covenant that God made with the Israelites, for example, when we were going through the book of Exodus. That Hebrew word is in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which many Jews had as they were scattered abroad through the exile and all these different time periods. They had, many of them, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew word for covenant could mean either covenant or will, as in like last will and testament, right? And so in this passage, the author of Hebrews is aware of those realities and is using that word, sometimes appealing to the analogy of a will that you receive after someone has died, and sometimes appealing to the idea of covenant paralleling the Old Testament. So with that background in mind, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Remember, a covenant is a set of promises that God has made to a specific group of people, a formal set of promises. Jesus died to make it happen. This is the first way that he's the mediator of a better covenant. He died to make it happen. Why was that important? Because a will is not active while the person who made the will is still living. It's probably an obvious thing, but... If we look, for example, at verse 16, where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Now we have to think about this from the perspective of whether this is true of covenants exclusively or only true if we take this word in the sense of will someone having left an inheritance. If we say a covenant only applies when the, one, when the one who made it has died, 
we have a problem, right? Because God made covenants with people in the Old Testament, and God didn't die. So we must understand what's being said here from the perspective of, here's a word that can be used in two senses. Here's the analogy I'm drawing to the covenants of the Old Testament. Here's the analogy I'm drawing to a will in which someone leaves behind an inheritance. But here's the important connection between those two ideas. The covenant is the pathway to the inheritance for the people of Israel. If the promises had not been made in the covenant, they would not receive them in terms of the inheritance. One other unique feature of what is going on here is that Christ is different from the normal person who makes a will and then it's carried out. What happens in human terms? You and I would say, here's what I want to happen in my will. We die. Someone comes along after us and the executor of the estate carries out our wishes in terms of the will. Why? Because we're not around anymore to do it. What's unique about Jesus? He is raised from the dead, so he can both be the one who has made the will and the promises and the one who carries out and fulfills those promises. And this is true of any analogy when it is applied to God. All our human descriptions and attempts to describe God in terms of ourselves fall short because God is so much greater than our ability to fully express in terms of analogies to human experience and to things with which we are familiar. So Christ died to make it happen because a will isn't active while the person who made it is alive. And to be clear, this is a will, a set of promises that God made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He gave them the law of Moses. He says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. The prophet Jeremiah says that to the people of Israel. Well, then that leaves the question for most, if not all of us in this room, how do we connect to that? We talked about that a little bit in our sermon discussion last Sunday night, and some of you thought that was probably a bit tedious and difficult to follow, but it's an important thing to think about for this perspective. If God makes a promise to Israel, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and then He says, no, actually, I meant you guys over here who are not Israelites. God hasn't done what He said He was going to do. That's why it's important. That being said, God has made similar promises to us. How do we know that? For example, in Ephesians 1, 13-14, Philippians 1, 6, Romans 8, 28-39, these are letters that Paul wrote to Gentiles in which he says, God is going to do the same things for you that he's promised to do for the Israelites in connection with the new covenant. And so that's where the application of what we're seeing in Hebrews, written to Hebrews, written to Israelites, applies to us as primarily Gentiles. The same things God does through Christ for Israelites in the New Covenant are the same things God does for us as Gentiles in connection with the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus died to make it happen because a will isn't active when the one who makes it is alive. Jesus died to make it happen because true cleansing of conscience and true cleansing of a holy place demands perfect blood. Why do I say that? Well, when we look at chapter 9, verses 19 through 24, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop 
and sprinkle the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels, all the vessels of the ministry, with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary, as Mike read a moment ago, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. So the old tabernacle, the priests, the people were set apart, dedicated, cleansed, sanctified to God by the sprinkling of the blood of animal sacrifices. Now those sacrifices had weaknesses and insufficiencies that we're going to talk more about in a moment, but that was how those things were cleansed symbolically by the sprinkling of the blood. The author of Hebrews is making the argument that just as the tabernacle and the people in the Old Testament had to be cleansed by the sprinkling of blood, so too the new and greater and real sanctuary in heaven had to be cleansed with blood, the blood of Christ, and we as God's people have to be cleansed with the blood of Christ. Now I say that, and if you've been in church a lot, you say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And if you step outside of that context for a minute, you say, this idea of being sprinkled with someone's blood sounds strange or weird or even disturbing, right? But think about what's going on here. What's going on here is not some sort of perverse ritual in which death is glorified and someone sprinkles blood because they're sadistic and cruel and strange. What's going on here is sin demands a sacrifice. And Jesus is that sacrifice, as we'll see in a moment. And so the blood of Jesus' sacrifice is what cleanses us from sin. Jesus died to make it happen because a will is inactive while the one who made it is alive. Jesus died to make it happen because true cleansing of conscience and holy place demands perfect blood. I talked about the cleansing of the holy place. What about the cleansing of conscience? Well, we read some things here in verses 19 through 24 about how the people in verse 19 were sprinkled with the blood for a ceremonial cleansing. We think back to chapter 9, verse 14, where it says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then a verse in the passage that we'll look at next week, chapter 10, Verse 22 says, Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, talks about us being able to draw near to God. What's the connection then between all these things? Christ's death, His sacrifice of His blood in our place, is the means for us to be cleansed, and Jesus cleanses both the heavenly sanctuary and His people by means of His perfect blood. Now, because there are people who've had strange ideas about this, it is not as though the blood of Jesus had something magical in the blood himself. It's not like he cut his finger and it was special and like whatever it touched, something strange happened. That's an important thing to clarify. Jesus had a human nature. He had a human body. There was nothing unusual about his blood type or the way that the cells work together or any of those sorts of things. What made Jesus' blood effective in terms of being an acceptable sacrifice to God was that he was perfect in the entirety of his being. 
not that there was something unique or strange about his composition as a human being, because that would be to deny that he's one of us, that he's fully human, right? And so that's an important point for us to understand. The last point about how Jesus died to make this covenant happen is that having died, he will return. Look at verse 28, chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Why is this important? Because the death and sacrifice of Christ was the necessary first step. He comes as a suffering servant, first of all, as Isaiah talks about, and then he comes as the ruling and reigning king. He comes to offer salvation in his first coming. He comes to carry out judgment and deliverance for his people in his second coming. Why is this so important? Because in the midst of that space is an opportunity for us to turn and follow him. So the question, when we read a verse like, Christ will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him, is, am I part of that group who have received salvation? Am I one of those who is eagerly awaiting the return of Christ? Because if not, what else is true? It is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. As it says, for example, in Acts 17.31, Paul preaching at Athens says that God has appointed the man Jesus Christ through whom he will judge the world in righteousness. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about Jesus coming to deliver his church. But at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, destruction and judgment and days of trouble are coming suddenly and without escape for those who reject Jesus as the one whom God has sent. And then building on that as well, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, Jesus is going to return. You Thessalonians are being persecuted, but Jesus is going to come and deliver you. But the way that that deliverance is accomplished is that he will pour out judgment on those who have rejected his word and refused to obey the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his work in place of sinners. So what is that work? Not only did Jesus die to carry out this covenant, but he died to save his people. Why do I say his people? Because he says in verse 15, that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And when the Bible says called, it's not called on the phone. It's not called with a voice in the night. In this context, it is those whom God has called to salvation. How else do I know that this is for God's people? Because verse 24 says that, or verse 28 talks about those who eagerly await him. And verse 24 says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the author of Hebrews is addressing those who believe in Jesus, those who have received salvation, and he says, Jesus died in order to accomplish that salvation for you. Now, what does this accomplish? His death was to sanctify them entirely. And we read chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. Jesus lived a perfect life. In verse 7 of chapter 10, it says, He came to do your will, O God. What was true of every person who lived before Jesus came? 
There were many instances in which they did not do God's will. They did not obey God and what he wanted them to do. Jesus perfectly, in every moment of every day throughout his entire life, does God's will. He's in the temple, wanders away when his family is heading back from making sacrifices at the temple. They find him in the temple, and they say, what are you doing here? I have to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why does he do all the things he does with his disciples? Why does he go to the cross to do the will of his Father who is in heaven? And so Jesus' righteous life was necessary. Jesus' sacrificial death was also necessary. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. He contrasts the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and sin offerings, all of the entire scope, all of the different types of offerings that you see in the Old Testament, were insufficient to satisfy God's wrath permanently. But Jesus offers not these things, but verse 10, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the purpose of this was to sanctify His people. And what, in what way does he sanctify his people? In what way does he cleanse them? In what way does he set them apart? Not just in terms of their bodies, but their conscience, their innermost person as well. We saw this in chapter 9, verse 14. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. We already talked about this, the cleansing of the tabernacle. And then chapter 10, verse 22, as I've already alluded to. So, Jesus dies to actually save his people. Furthermore, secondly, to provide forgiveness of sin for them. Where do we see this? Chapter 9, verse 22. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Chapter 9, verse 26. He has been manifested to put away sin and by the sacrifice of himself. And then chapter 10, verses 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will rem remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now it's important at this point that I should clarify that Jesus has secured actual forgiveness. For his people. Why is this an important point? There are many groups within professing Christianity that view the work of Christ as though it is this pool, this cup, this basin full of forgiveness. And you need that forgiveness, and a little bit is poured out for you. What was it that God was accomplishing? In the death of Christ. To bring salvation, Hebrews 9.28, to those who eagerly await Him. Jesus is not here seeking to accomplish a potential forgiveness for anyone in the whole wide world. What do I mean by that? Jesus came to accomplish what God sent Him to do. Look at John 6, 37-47 for further explanation of this. 
But God said to Jesus, I am giving these to you. Jesus says, I am dying for these for whom you have given me. These that you have given me, I will raise up at the last day. I will never lose them. They will be with me forever. So here's the important question. The important question is not whether you think everyone is going to heaven. If you read the scripture, you cannot think that. At the very least, we would say that Satan and his angels are not going to be in heaven. So the question is not, do you see a limit on the intent of Jesus' sacrifice? The question is, what is that limit? And my answer would be, and I hope yours as well, that Jesus is going to save those for whom he died. Jesus is going to bring them into God's presence. Jesus is going to raise them up on the last day. And they will be with him forever in heaven. And so the reason that this is important is because if Christ's work is finished, as we will see in a moment, and Christ's work is done, from our perspective, not all who will be saved have yet believed in Jesus. Right? But from God's perspective, this work is settled or finished or done, which means it's not something that ebbs and flows and changes and, and that we can affect. So then some people would say, well, we don't need to give the gospel to people. Well, what God wants to do is going to be done. So we just sort of sit around and wait for it to happen. That is a false conclusion. God uses means to accomplish salvation. The forgiveness, the sacrifice, the atonement is once for all. The point in time at which it is carried out from the perspective of those who receive it, there are many points in time all throughout human history in which the sacrifice of Christ, which is settled, finished, final, completed, is experienced personally by individuals. I say all this so that we have a proper understanding of the foundation of salvation and what's going on here. If you and I are going to go talk to somebody about Jesus, the thing that you and I need to talk to them about is not necessarily to explain all of this to them until after they've trusted in Jesus. The thing that we need to do is stress this. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring judgment. Are you ready for that day? That's the thing that we ought to call people to. Have you repented? Do you believe in Jesus? He is the only way to God. But the backdrop and the importance of that is God is accomplishing a work that will not fail, which ought to give us confidence. Because when we speak the gospel to someone, if they receive that gospel message, it's not by our great efforts, it is by God's divine power. And just as God told Paul when he was in a city and preaching there for a long period of time, I have many in this city we too ought to have confidence that God has people around us that we need to take that message to because God has purposed from long ago to bring them to salvation and so we can have confident expectation that He is going to do what He has purposed to do. Not only did Jesus bring through or mediate or accomplish a new covenant, and just to clarify, people 
Um, there are many disputes among theologians about the point at which that new covenant with Israel takes place. Did it take place at the cross? Will it take place in the end times? How does the church connect to it? That's not something that I'm going to try to resolve for us right this moment. The important thing is that Jesus' death is the basis for that covenant. Until he dies, it cannot take place. What God has promised will happen, and God is going to fulfill all of his promises to his people. That's the important truth that we need to walk away with from this passage and the rest of Scripture. But beyond that, and perhaps even as if not more important for us as Gentile believers, is the fact that Jesus is the sacrifice in your place. Now, to clarify, when I say Jesus is the sacrifice in your place, I mean if you are trusting in Him. Why do I say that? Because if you are not trusting in Jesus, you ought to have no expectation that He is the sacrifice in your place. Why do I say that? Jesus did not sacrifice Himself so that we would live in and love our sin, and if we live in and love our sin, that we can say, Jesus is my sacrifice, everything's good, God is happy with me. Right? What is this sacrifice? Not a sacrifice of animals, but of himself. We saw in, uh, we see in verse 26, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not, as chapter 10, verse uh, 1 talks about sacrifices they offer continually year by year, or chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not sacrifice of animals, but sacrifice of Jesus himself. What is different between Jesus and the priests of the Old Testament? The priests of the Old Testament killed an animal, laid it on the altar, set fire to it, and offered it to God. What does Jesus do? Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice in one person. This, I think, makes more clear the point of a passage like Romans 12, 1 and 2. That we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Are we priests for God? Do we serve Him like the priests did? Yes. How do we serve Him? Not by ultimately offering Him the contents of the bank, our bank accounts, the strength of our physical bodies. Although He deserves all those things, owns all those things, and is the reason we have any of those things, God is not primarily concerned about that so much as He is that you and I offer our very selves in service to Him. Why? Because we're following after the pattern of Jesus here. Jesus is the sacrifice in your place if you trust in Him, not a sacrifice of animals but Himself, both priest and sacrifice in one person. Not a repeated sacrifice for temporary cleansing, but once for all completion of the work. Look at chapter 9, verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. Or chapter 10, verse 3, In those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or chapter 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus' sacrifice is finished. He's not going to do it again. You and I can't do it again. So when we see something like 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about a, perhaps we could say a reenactment in some measure of the sacrifice of Jesus, it cannot be a repetition of the sacrifice itself. It can only be a memorial of that sacrifice, something that points us to what Jesus has done. So it is heretical and it is dangerous and destructive for us to say that some human priest can hold up some object and say Jesus in himself enters into that object and is sacrificed again. Whether it's anecdotal or whether it's true, it's said that Martin Luther saw some priests in his day who were giving the Lord's table, the Eucharist as they would call it, and they said something along these lines. We've brought him up, let's send him back again. This is blasphemy. You cannot sacrifice Christ again. Christ has sacrificed himself once for all. And as we wrestle through passages like Ezekiel 40 through 48, where it describes a temple that has not yet been built and makes promises to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled, again, I think we have to understand that any sort of sacrifice that is offered in the context of a temple, even in the millennial kingdom, could only ever be to point to what Jesus has done, not to reenact the old system of sacrifice. Because this passage highlights in great detail the insufficiencies and the inadequacies of animal sacrifices to deal permanently with sin. Jesus died so that the people of Israel can receive their inheritance. And as we see from the other passages in Ephesians and Philippians and Romans, Jesus died so you, too, can receive your inheritance, these promises that he has made. So that ought to give us hope about our future with Christ. He wants you to receive that inheritance. If he said this was necessary to happen in order for you to receive that inheritance, and then he did the thing that was necessary, that to give you hope that he wants you to receive that inheritance. We'll build on that next week when we talk about this idea of not shrinking back to destruction, but of pressing on to receive the promises and bring all these ideas together from the last few chapters here at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus wants you to receive the inheritance with him, not money now, not power now, not fame now, but glory in his presence forever. So press on toward those promises. Jesus was perfected by suffering and makes his people perfect. He does this by sanctifying them and forgiving them with his blood, through his blood. 
So you and I must stop any attempt to save ourselves or in favor with God or work our way to God. What does that look like? You can't work your way to God apart from Jesus. There's a lot of people in this world who say, if I just pray prayers, if I just pay it forward, if I just uphold causes of societal justice, if I just whatever the thing, fill in the blank is, if it's anything other than Jesus, it is a false hope and you will not be in God's presence because you have done whatever that thing is. You can't work your way to God apart from Jesus. And I think for most of us, we get that. And most, if not all of us in this room, have said, I've turned from my sins, I've turned to God through Jesus and what Jesus has done. So here's the point for us. You can't make God happier with you once you trust in Jesus by the things that you do. There are many in connection with Christianity who have had the burden placed on their consciences that if I pray this number of times a day, if I read this amount of the Bible every day, if I go to church this number of times every year, if I fill in the blank, I will be closer to God because I have somehow contributed to my salvation in a way that the death of Jesus was not enough. Am I saying it's bad to do those things? No, you should read your Bible, pray, and come to church. But your relationship with God does not stand or fall based on those things. You do not earn more brownie points with God because you've done those things. God is not happier with you than He could be simply based on the death of Jesus in your place. And that is so important for us as Christians because we can be weighed down and burdened with guilt that I... Yeah, you know, I'm not going to earn my salvation apart from Jesus, but I'm going to keep my salvation apart from Jesus. I'm not going to get saved apart from believing in Jesus, but I'm going to stay saved because I work really hard at it. Now, we'll talk more next week about this idea of persevering in the faith, and certainly there is work involved in it, but the work is not to earn God's favor. The work is in light of what God has already done for us that we can never add to or increase or do better. And so, in summary, you and I must stop any attempt to replace what Jesus has done with what I am doing or what I have done. And then thirdly, Jesus has cleansed, forgiven, and sanctified you. Why is this important? Sometimes we speak of ourselves as sinners, and in some respect that is true from the perspective that we are not yet made perfect in our experience. The danger, however, is this. We are at a point in our society where we describe ourselves as sinners in ways that reject the truth of the gospel. Let me give you an example. You cannot have a Christian thief. He goes out, he steals from people every single day. He says, but I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian thief. If we live in our sin and we love our sin and it characterizes our lives, we cannot then say, I'm a Christian, fill in the name of the sin. Because that's contrary to what God has done in our lives. If we've been cleansed, 
forgiven and perfected from that sin, how can we then walk in it? That's the argument that Paul and all the rest of the apostles make, right? So, just because Jesus forgives sins that we commit after the point that we start trusting in Jesus, and just because we still sin, as 1 John would say, from time to time in our Christian lives, those who falsely claim we can be perfect in this life do have a point. If sin's no big deal to you, how do you call yourself a Christian? All right? So let's push it a step further. It is possible in our day not only to describe someone as a Christian thief, but to describe someone as a Christian homosexual. Or a Christian adulterer. Or a Christian murderer or a Christian whatever. And there's probably one of those in that list that you push back on, but I ask you to examine your heart and life and say, do I think of myself, myself in terms of being a Christian, but I'm fine with this sin in terms of my heart? You say, maybe I've never committed the act of adultery, Maybe I've never committed the act of homosexuality. Maybe I've never committed the act of murder. Maybe I've never committed the, the act of going and physically bowing down before some sort of idol, openly and publicly and for everyone to see. But it's in my heart, but that's just part of who I am. God says that's not okay. Now, do we need to have grace and patience with the reality that it takes time for our lives to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But should we get to a point where we're complacent and we're like, well, just because it's in my heart and mind, it's okay. That's the lie that the world would feed us. And that's the lie that at many points in our lives you and I may believe. Why do I say this? Because Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're a sinner, even if you ever go and kill him like Cain did with Abel. Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you're a sinner, even if you never go and publicly and in front of people break your marriage covenant. And you and I need to wrestle with these things, right? Because... we think that it's okay that... If I don't do the sin, but just think it, it's okay. All right, let's push it a step further. What if you don't do it? What if you don't think it? What if you just want it? Because again, there are people who say, with all of these sorts of sins, as long as you don't act on the sinful desire, it's okay. But God wants to root out even the sinful desires themselves. Why is that important? What does that look like? It looks like God wants to transform us from wanting that thing that He said we cannot want, even though it is such a strong desire, it feels like an inseparable part of who we are. And God wants to replace that desire with wanting Him and what He wants. So, 
Does that mean that the solution is for the adulterer to have a stable marriage? No, the solution is for him to love Jesus. He may have broken his marriage, he may have wrecked it, he may have destroyed it, and the solution, from God's perspective, is not that everything goes back to this peaceful, amazing, wonderful picture of marriage. That would be great, but the solution is for him to turn from wanting what he wants to wanting Jesus and what Jesus wants. The solution is not just that this person stops stealing. There has to be a transformation of his action, the theft, his desire, greed, and his thought, I need this, I want it, I've got to have it, to I work so that I can give because it honors God. So here's what's going on here. If past tense you have been sanctified, if past tense you have been forgiven, if past tense you have been perfected, live like it. And I'm preaching to myself as well because temptation faces every one of us and far more often than we ought to, which is never, we say yes to that temptation. And God says, if Jesus' sacrifice accomplished what it accomplished, you can't live that way. Follow me. Live for me. Do what I've called you to do. Your inheritance is certain. Find hope in that. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Stop trying to replace it. And if you've believed in Jesus through what He has done, you are sanctified. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. So don't act like that's something down the road we'll get to later on. Inherit the promises through hope because Jesus will accomplish better promises by His perfect sacrifice in your place. Let's pray. Lord, I think the pro problem when it comes to promises is that they're promises and they haven't happened yet. And our faith is often weak and we get distracted by the things around us and we fail to press on toward what is yet to come. Especially if it takes a while to get here. We're like kids who are hungry for lunch. We're not, we're not willing to wait for something amazing that takes an hour to cook. We want something we can stick in the microwave and have in 30 seconds. Lord, what you have promised for us is so much better, and sometimes we settle for so much less. Beyond that, Lord, when we do so, we reject the amazing value of Christ's sacrifice in our place through sin, through self-righteousness, through all the various ways we reject Jesus as being the only and perfect and sufficient offering for us in your sight. Lord, in whatever way these truths need to strike deep within our hearts and point out the ways in which we love sin or that we try to earn your favor by our self-sufficiency, 
or whether we have lost sight of pressing on toward your promises because it seems too far off, help us to repent. Lord, if we are faithfully following you in light of all these truths here, then I pray that we might continue to do so faithfully by your grace. Lord, I pray that we would see, as the song we sang earlier, that you are our temple, priest, and lamb, that we would be filled with joy as we anticipate the day in which our faith will be made sight and the curse of sin be removed, and that that hope would invigorate us to fervently follow after you even this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.